Welcome to Wild on Health, your weekly holistic prescription for living healthy naturally. Lifespan, that's simply the time you'll clock on this planet. Healthspan, however, is the time that you'll spend living your life in optimal mental and physical health. Join me on Seeking Healthspan, podcast loaded with sensible recommendations and tips intended to put quality years on your life. Today, we're talking about heart health as it relates to Healthspan, but not in the conventional manner that you'd think. We're not discussing cholesterol, blood pressure, or hardening of the arteries. Turns out that monitoring the beat-to-beat variation and the time intervals between heart contractions, however, provides an incredibly valuable window into what's going on inside your body, possibly as important as our expected lifespan. This biofeedback health span hacking measure is known as heart rate variability, and we'll discuss that. We'll also discuss how we're all connected on a global scale of synchronization through a global information field that has a lot to do with the heart. Dr. Roland McCrady, PhD, spent a lifelong studying the connection between the heart, mind, and body, and energetic fields. He is a director of research at the HeartMath Research Center at the HeartMath Institute. As a psychophysiologist, his research interests include the physiology of emotion, heart-brain communication, and the global interconnectivity between people and the Earth's energetic systems. Findings from his research have been applied to the development of many educational programs and technologies to optimize individual and organizational health, performance, and the quality of life. Dr. McCready has acted as principal investigator in numerous studies examining the effects of emotions on heart-brain coherence and the benefits of self-regulation, focused interventions in diverse organizational, educational, and clinical populations. He's also been featured, not surprisingly, in numerous documentary films such as I Am, The Truth, The Joy of Socks, The Power of the Heart, one of my favorites, Solar Revolution, The One Field, Deconstructing Sentience, and The Living Matrix, among others. Dr. McCready, welcome to Wild on Health, Seeking Healthspan, sir. Well, it's great to be here, uh, Bryce. It's uh, always fun talking with you and uh, happy to have a chance to see where we go. Explore. Yes, sir. No, I really, really appreciate it. And I thank you again for uh, becoming a part of uh, my more recent book, uh, brain span. Of course, we investigated uh, health span uh, of the brain and talked about this a little bit in that book. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, before getting into the wonders of heart coherence and the effects of positive and negative emotions on human psychophysiology, and of course, how all of that has implications on optimizing health span, I thought perhaps um, we could start with a basic definition of the autonomic nervous system. Uh, both parasympathetic and sympathetic sort of frame things up for folks. I mean, I suppose if we start with this neuro highway, um, it, it's a little easier to uh, then broach the topic of the heart brain connection. Sure. I mean, the simple way I, simplest way I can, can describe the autonomic system is that it's the, you, you actually said it well, but kind of the, the neural information highway uh, that connects really the the brain with the body yeah but the, the now here's it's gets interesting because uh and it's two different branches as you already alluded to what we call the sympathetic and the parasympathetic traditionally called and those are different pathways literally so the sympathetic nerves that connect body to brain go down the, the spinal column basically you know and connect all the glands and organs and so on 
And the parasympathetic comes down more or less through the front of the body for what are called the vagus nerves. There's two of them, one on each side of the body, come through the front. And the vagus nerve is the longest nerve in the body. Um, and it's a, it, you know, they're, they're big nerves. There are thousands of neural fibers running up and down. And I say running up and down because it's the up part that usually gets left out in these mm -hmm. kind of discussions. And so it, you could kind of think of it as the internet, the body's internet. The, um, uh, now the vagus is uh, interesting in, in uh, why it drives me crazy that this is starting to change, but even in medical school, we leave out what's called the afferent is the neuroscience term, but the ascending nerves pathways. So we take the vagus nerve, longest nerve in the body, right? 90% of those neural fibers are going from the body to the brain. <laughs> and only 10% are down brain down to body. And that's what's gotten left out of a lot of education, even in medicine for many years. Didn't used to be that way, but uh, uh, so, it's really how the brain and body talk to each other is through the autonomic system, which is different than our central system, which lets us move our legs and pick up a glass of water and do all these type, types of things. So it's, it's um, kind of all the auto, automatic processes that, that of regulation that are going on, digestion, uh, heart rate, um, these types of things that we don't think about. Why, what a mess it would be if we had to keep thinking about all those, well, we couldn't couldn't possibly do it. Sure. Um, so there are many, many uh, functions. And the autonomic system also has interactions with our hormonal system. It's kind of the driver of it in a certain way, what tells it what to do. And also with the immune system, especially the, the parasympathetic or the vagus side. So I don't know, is that kind of what you were looking yeah, for? Yeah, and, you know, and, and I mean, in a lot of what you talk about as it pertains to, um, which we'll get into, managing heart rate variability, we'll explain this to folks, what this means and uh, why having a higher score is important for, for health span, but that we are by and large in today's society in a sympathetic dominant state, whereas we have to learn to achieve more of a parasympathetic state. Ultimately, of course, stress is what people most resonate with when we talk about sympathetic or fight or flight uh, versus parasympathetic, which is rest and digest. So we're in this kind of uh, state of chronic fight and flight, aren't we? Um, yes and no. Um, I sometimes take issue with, with this. Um, so the just to go back to our sympathetic and parasympathetic, it's the sympathetic when more neural, more traffic is going down that part of the nervous system and it goes to the heart, that increases heart rate, right? Goes to the, also the stomach and that shuts down digestion. And, you know, if you ever have dry mouth, if you're nervous and stuff, that's the sympathetic. So it kind of dries things, speeds things up, dries things up. Right. And as simply as a way to say that. Whereas the parasympathetic does the opposite. You're, so you're, you're absolutely right. There's more increased activity when, we, when we're resting or relaxed or needing to digest and things. So we're not, you know, um, running up the stairs and these types of things. Now, I'm going to uh, give you a somewhat long answer here, if I, if I may, if that's okay. Yep, of course. So one of the, of course, the, one of the main things that controls how much activity is going on on these two branches of the nervous system is our physical activity. Right. I, I, my lab is upstairs in a building here, so I have to climb the stairs to get to my office. Right. So this, you should have more sympathetic activity. Right. You, you, you need a higher blood pressure and a higher heart rate to have the energy to do that. So sympathetic is really about expending energy, having the energy available to expend for me to climb the stairs. 
Now I get up here in my office, I sit down. So that what I would say is relative balance in the activity should now, the sympathetic would slow down, would, would uh, ease off and more parasympathetic to slow heart rate and sit here and have a conversation. However, so that's the main thing that's really controlling that. The, uh, but where we really lose a lot of our energy and the imbalance that you're referring to and comes from is emotions. So it's, uh, and this is so, what I'm about to say is so easy to prove here in the lab. Emotions are what run the show in terms of our physiology. It's not our thoughts. And it's so easy to, to show. We can have you wired up to, you know, brain waves and blood pressure and heart rhythms and hormones, all the things we've done for 30 years. And I can be having you think about things or try to do subtractions, you know, subtracting numbers mentally and, you know, all that. Yeah, you can measure changes, but not much. But once you trigger a feeling, an emotion, I get embarrassed because I'm making mistakes on doing the subtractions or I get frustrated or impatient, right? Boy, big changes happen quick. Right. In your blood pressure, your hormonal outflows, the activity in the nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. Um, or in fact, you've just set in motion at least 1400 biochemical changes just from getting frustrated or impatient. Now, um, so we, I call those um, depleting emotions, I'm not trying to make good or bad, but that is the effect they have. They, they used that energy. On the other hand, emotions like appreciation or feelings of kindness and compassion, well, they also activate the system, but in a very different way. That takes us more into a, what we'd call intersynchronized and coherent state and create different rhythms of hormonal flows, ones that really add energy uh, to our system. So I think we need to kind of keep this in mind as we talk about this, is it's really our emotions that run the show. And when we talk about stress, it's always an emotion. Right. It's the feelings. We call it, you're stressing me out, Right. Or what are we really saying, though? I'm getting frustrated because you're not doing what I want you to, or I'm feeling overwhelmed, these types. So stress is always an emotion. So stress management and being able to self-regulate our emotional diet is really what can, is going to make a big change in that activity going on in, in our nervous system. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Immune system, right? That makes a whole lot of sense. I love it when you refer to the emotional diet. And I suppose that's where I'm coming from. If we were to uh, encapsulate the sensation of being stressed out as you refer to it as the emotions of frustration or uncomfortableness or embarrassment that we refer to as sort of the negative emotions. Impatience, a big Impatience. one. And if, if we were to sort of encapsulate all those into this sort of uh, potential for being more into a sympathetic state versus relaxed, focused, attent, uh, alert, concentrating, um, as parasympathetic or happiness or joy or feelings of appreciation. Um, I suppose here's really the better question for you. Are we as a, you know, world as a, as a global state, are we not more currently in a, in a state of dysautonomia or imbalanced sympathetic versus parasympathetic? Well, I'm not so sure. Um, we're in a state of emotional imbalance for sure. Gotcha. Uh, but even, you know, things like joy, right? You increase sympathetic activity. Yeah, that's really interesting. Right. So the, the there's two two levels of this. One is the synchronized activity in the nervous brain and nervous system, which is the big game to be playing these days and understanding. The so the sympathetic system gets kind of a bad rap, right? The fight, flight, all this. But we want a healthy sympathetic system, right? We need that to 
do things, you know, to engage in life. The, the problem is, so a, a good analogy for this is kind of, you can think of the sympathetic as, sympathetic as the accelerator pedal, right, in the system and the parasympathetic as the brakes. So what we see, now I, I have to bring age into this, which I think is appropriate here. When we're younger, we're really resilient, right? And we can beat the system up quite a bit through a lot of, you know, and, and we all do that as, as kids, right? And growing up through the teenage years where, you know, we're, sympathetic is really on overdrive a lot of times and and that's okay but in later years what we are actually seeing is that the sympathetic becomes underperforming we kind of deplete it and so what's really the issue is not necessarily that we have a stuck accelerator so much is we have bad brakes so it's the parasympathetic that allows us to self-regulate and inhibit you know especially emotional responses Somebody does something, says something that tr triggers us, right? Uh, we don't have the, the, the proper brakes to self-regulate that and say, well, wait a minute. This is trivial. It's just not a big deal. Do I really add this much emotional significance, you know, and over-personalizations to all this, this, which is really the bigger issue, I think. So what we, in other words, what we see in later life is actually a, an underactive sympathetic system. But that's because we haven't developed the brakes to really keep things in balance over the months and years to where we end up depleted. Um, so that's why I said it's not a, not quite as simple as a stuck sympathetic. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. You know, I suppose emotional wisdom and uh, age, um, you know, could po possibly, uh, you know, add years to our life through maybe what we could call vagal tone or uh, well, optimizing, uh, you know, autonomic tone. Yeah, well, how about emotional regulation? Emotional regulation. Because that, because the, the nervous the system is really what's just carrying the signals. Kind of think of it as the wires. So it's what's above that that's the real issue. Right. You know, that's causing those changes in the balance between the two and the activations. So this is what I hope to achieve out of this conversation is that emotional regulation, as we have just summarized, can likely add years, quality years, health span. Uh, agreed. Uh, well, there's uh, absolutely under studies that support that. Sure. You know, it's not just a, a concept. Of course. And um, that's what heart math's uh, largely about. So, so tell us, let's start with heart rate variability. This is a concept that people are hearing more and more about. It's a perhaps even a medical buzz term of the day for a really good reason. How is improving it uh, having implications on health span? What is it and, and how well, do we? Okay. Oh boy, I'm going to try this. We could spend a whole hour just on <laughs> that question, but l let me try and simplify it. You know, and I, I've often quoted for saying heart rate variability is really simple, or you can spend an entire career trying to understand it. Right. It, it really spans because uh, it reflects so much about what's going on in our body uh, by understanding the, the deeper levels of it. But at the simple level, it's the time between each pair of heartbeats. So, you know, 30 years ago or so, it was thought that a sign of good health was a steady heart rhythm, right? That the time between, it was kind of like a metrodome, right? So the time between each heartbeat was always be the same unless we got up and did some activity or something. Completely wrong. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. So the time, if you, so we all know what heart rate is, right? How many times does the heart beat in a minute? But in reality, if you look a little closer, you find that the time intervals between each consecutive pair of heartbeats is always changing. It's varying. That's where the variability term comes in, heart rate and variability. 
Now we have more of this natural variability when we're young and it gets less and less of this, you know, the amount of variations as we age. In fact, we can tell uh, about how old someone is if they're on a healthy trajectory, you know, kind of normal aging within about two years of how old they actually are uh, chronologically just by looking at their HRV. So it's, it's one of the best measures of aging is how much of this natural variability we have. Now, here's the, the issue is, though, that if our, the amount of variability we have starts declining faster than that normal age decline, that is not good. Right. And in fact, that's associated with every, every major disease there is that's known that I, there's thousands of, of research studies on this. So it, what the... Uh, number one thing that causes that decreased variability for our age is long-term stress. It's not because we have a bad day, right? This is long-term. We're starting a new business, right? And we're, we're expending more energy than we're able to recover. Going through a divorce or some major thing like that that lasts over a long time period. Um, or we're just not paying attention to our health and, and those kind of things. So, um, in fact, it, the lower variability you'll see that uh, preceding the onset of symptoms in a lot of diseases, cancer, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, especially several years, even before the, the symptoms of the disease come on. So that's why it's so popular and becoming so in, in uh, clinical medicine. So the, but there's another yet deeper level of heart rate variability. So there's the how much, right? Which you know, we can measure pretty easily these days. But then there's also what we call the, um, the state-specific heart rate variability, the pattern of it. So when, like, you're feeling frustrated or loving, right, or appreciative, what you see in the actual the rhythm of the HRV is radically different. And that's independent of how much of it we have. Right. Okay. And that's kind of reflecting our emotional state. Right? So that, that's something that we use in our technologies to give feedback to what is my state, but then more importantly, we, we know a lot now about uh, a certain pattern of HR, which, which kind of like, looks like rolling hills or a sine wave. That's ideal. That's an optimal state where the, the body is in a highly synchronized state. Everything's working together harmoniously. That's why we call it coherent, a coherent state. And that, if we practice that, it allows us to better self-regulate right? Thoughts, emotions, behaviors, right? So we're not creating more stress in our life, right? Or kind of start to get a handle on our choosing our own emotional diet. And that ends up increasing HRV, um, you know, if, it, if it's low, or at least not letting it um, get lower than it should be for our age. Right, right. And there, and the uh, and the otherwise jagged edge, as you referred to that sine wave, the jagged uh, sign when it's emotional dysregulation. So if, if we could consider HRV sort of to be a measure of the interplay uh, between our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems that ultimately yields our emotional diet, whether we have to reform that or not is the question, uh, that the higher HRV reading, uh, the more balanced the relationship is. Um, yeah, and, and also more synchronized if we kind of keep in mind that a lot of what creates those incoherent jagged patterns or the smooth coherent patterns is really up here. Right. It's above the autonomic system. Right. That's driving it into chaos and incoherence or into order and harmony. And, and here's really the bottom line that we're going to get to soon. And that's that folks have the ability to optimize, manage it, 
rather than simply cope with stress or a bad emotional diet, they can change their diet uh, and reform uh, their heart rate variability and therefore uh, their coherence. I want to dive into a little bit more about coherence in a second, but from a health span uh, sort of hacking point of view, our goal is to increase HRV in order to enhance a state of balance or homeostasis uh, that enhances our overall health. You mentioned, um, you know, there's a lot of research and studies. This is the whole point of the HeartMath Institute uh, and the work that you're doing. And you mentioned age. And of course, that we typically reduce naturally over time. Uh, it's very age-related, correlated. But what about gender, genetics, you know, the environment, exercise, sleep, you know, even things like what we consume and our real diet, like you know, coffee. How does all of this impact HRV? Yeah, it, all of those things you mentioned do, but not as much as you might think. Interesting. Um, genetics, there's been some studies on genetics and it's, you know, there's a, I forget the percentage, it's a factor, but not the big player. And there's been multiple studies on supplements and different things. And, uh, it, and yes, they, they have an effect, but it's not the, it's not the magic bullet. Yep. And one of the primary mechanisms by which we lower HRV faster than the natural is inflammation. So high inflammatory diets, for example, would not be or not a good thing, uh, you know, and eating well. And that's, I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't pay attention to our diet. Of course we should, right? And getting, you know, healthy exercise, of course. Uh, and those are all factors. But the big, the big issue here is, uh, and I can say this, we've done HRV analysis for clinics all over the world, is stress. It's long-term sure. stress. That's the big one that takes us out. Um, other and then the second level would be some type of a chronic disease, diabetes, or metabolic syndrome, these kinds of, of, of things also, of course. Of course, that makes sense. And I, think, and I think the underpinning or the, or let's, the underscore that's necessary uh, here is chronic or long-term because not all stress is bad. Obviously, it's the emotion behind the stress, the length of time. Even exercise <clears throat> is hormetic, which is... Uh, really dose dependent, a little bit's going to, you know, kind of not do too much, too much might kill you. It's that perfect Goldilocks zone. So whether we're right. talking about uh, mental, emotional stress, uh, anxiety, or the emotions that are uh, behind that or exercise <clears throat> in the moment. In fact, I've, I, I don't know, I've studied my HRV at the wazoo now, uh, whether it's with inner balance or my Apple watch or during exercise, HRV plummets. It's really between the recovery phase and rest that you see this improvement. I, explain this to folks. Well, well sure. That, this is getting maybe a little deep here, but uh, the reason that heart rate variability goes down during exercise is you have a higher heart rate. Right. So when you have a higher heart rate, there's less time between each pair of heartbeats for variation to occur within and that's actually called cycle length dependence. So at higher heart rates, you naturally have lower variabilities because of there's not enough, you know, and as you have lower heart rates, there's more larger windows of time between each heartbeat. So there's more space in time for variation to occur. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's not a surprising finding. And in fact, the, in athletics, you know, professional athletics, heart rate variability is often used as a measure, you measure these devices, in fact, we use them here uh, for a lot of our research that are made for athletes, right? That measure your HRV over 24 hours. And what, uh, so it's especially what happens during sleep with the HRV that is a, an indicator of what's called in athletics overtraining, mm -hmm. right? We're expending more energy than we're able to recover, right? So which is directly related to decreased performance. Right. 
So a lot of professional teams monitor the HRV of the athletes to find that window, training window, where you're getting enough training, but not overtraining the system into one of depletion, right? increasing performance. And we can use that in everyday life. I mean, uh, for regular people too, it's the same thing. If we have a, a very, in fact, it's the same measures that would be used in athletics that are the main indicators of a lot of stress going on in our life. Um, it's the same thing, right? Right. It's just, right. you know, um, yeah. So coherence, you know, we, we said we'd get back to this, I mean, at least in physics, it refers to uh, well, a bunch of, but two wave sources, perhaps that have identical or connected frequency and waveform. Um, explain to us, and this is, you know, coherence is really the nugget here is, is what exactly is the heart brain coherence? We've alluded to it so far, but what is that? And, and how do we harness this? Yeah, great question. So in physics, you're absolutely right. Coherence is a concept and a term used in every branch of physics, everything from astronomy to molecular biology. And in a coherent system, and coherence is usually in the context of a complex system, and it's reflecting how well are all the parts working together in a harmonious way and stability. And energy efficiency is a, is a key concept in coherence. Coherent systems are more energy efficient. And another really important aspect of a coherent system is that the output or the function is greater than the sum of the parts. Those are all baked into the, the meaning of coherence. Oh, right. So I, I know what you mean by two things, like a laser moving at the same time, but there's a much broader meaning of coherence. So in terms of the heart and brain, you know, we've talked about the autonomic system and being more nerves going upstairs than the other way around. Right. Well, the majority of those come literally from the heart that are going from the brain from the, in the, through the autonomic system. So the heart actually sends far more information to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. Amazing. And this, this is not new. This has been known since the late 1800s. Right. You know, kind of rediscovery sometimes. In fact, psychology was based on that understanding back in the late 1800s into the 1920s and 30s. You know, then that all got forgotten and the thing shifted. It's all about the brain, right? Yeah. Well, that's starting to change again now. It has been since the 70s when it was discovered that the, I'm just going to call it the quality of the neural traffic at the heart ascending up to the brain profoundly affects brain function and the perception and even has a lot to do with our experience, emotional experience. I mean, why is it that we naturally put our hands on our chest and say, I love you with all of my heart when we're, mm -hmm proposing or talking to our spouse. We don't say, I love you with all my brain, <laughs> right? Great. That probably wouldn't go over very well, right? So we intuitively know that there's something deeper about the heart than just pumping blood. And, and this is all true. This is all, the mechanisms of all this have all been worked out since the 70s and uh, through some of our work and many others around the world. And so the, the so I'm trying to say this as simply as I can. I mean, most people know what, I'm sorry about that, uh, brain waves are right you know like our alpha waves and so on and beta and theta and so on well that those uh, rhythms are much faster than the heartbeat rhythms but they're synchronized to the heart mm. now when we get in a heart coherent state heart rhythm coherence guess what happens to the brain activity it becomes more synchronized within the brain but all but but the big factor is that the neural activity between the heart and brain become measurably more synchronized, more coherent. And this is what really underlies optimal performance and function. It's how we clear the mental fog. We think clearer, make better decisions, 
uh, you know, one of the bigger aspects of this, I think, in people's day-to-day lives is the, the activity in the frontal part of our brain, the frontal prefrontal cortex areas. And one of, one of my mentors, I don't know if you, you knew him or not, uh, Bryce, was Dr. Carl Prebram, a really famous guy. He's kind of considered the father of modern cognitive neuroscience. Sure. He used to hang out here a lot, the late doc. He passed away a few years ago now. But what he taught me to, how to, to really think about the brain in general, but especially the frontal, well, the frontal cortex, what does it give us as humans that pets and, you know, our pets and things don't have is foresight. Mm-hmm. Right, the ability to understand how our actions and behaviors are going to affect the future. Sure. Right. Not a good idea to hit the boss if you want to keep your job. Right. Um, so foresight, when you think about it, that that's a lot. That's a really big deal. Discrimination of appropriate behavior. Right. Planning, goal setting, uh, appreciating that you reached a goal. All of that. The abstract thinking. That's all that part of the brain. And the simple way of saying this is that those the, the neural machinery that underlies these these functions has to be well synchronized to perform optimally, right? And when we're in an incoherent heart state, which is so it's a system, right? That's a back and forth that takes offline that part of our brain. That's why when we get angry or upset with somebody, we tend to say, and not that anybody's ever done this, right? Uh, we blurt out the thing that we probably didn't even mean. Yeah. You know, right? You know, that out of that anger or anxiety, we say things that really, you know, uh, whereas when we're in a coherent state, we don't do that so much, right? Because we have the foresight, the ability to know that, hey, that's just going to hurt your feelings. I don't really even mean that, right? So we make much better choices and decisions. Uh, reaction times are faster, better coordination. I mean, the list goes on and on of the benefits of getting the heart and brain in sync fascinating you know and, and and you and you research and teach um an emotional restructuring technique that can help in state or perhaps to use uh the infamous words lock in uh new patterns that work to sustain this coherence period uh for longer periods of time thereby achieving uh coherence that becomes more uh, i suppose automatic that we can draw yeah, exactly. from it easier and easier over time and this creates this I suppose, resilience or cushioning against um, recurring stress or these depleting emotions, as you allude to. So um, this thing you refer to as heart lock-in technique, I feel like this is a technique that will put quality years and health span, if you will, on everyone's life. So tell us about what the heart lock-in is and how the the average person can perhaps accomplish it. Because this is a technique that we can use. We can ground it, can use it daily and improve coherence, you know, by virtue of improving heart rate variability. Uh, sure. I mean, heart lock, well, there's about, I would say, eight core heart math techniques, and the heart lock-in is one of those. Right. Um, most of them are really about techniques that you use in the moment when you're starting to feel anxiety or frustration or impatience. You know, some education goes along with this understanding of what we're doing to ourselves, and but how to shift that, right? Not repress, that never works, these yeah. emotions. We have to kind of redirect their, their energy into renewing uh, emotions. But heart lock-in would be closest uh, of our techniques to a, basically, I think of it as a heart-focused meditation technique. This is a technique when you've got a few minutes, you know, you're not driving or in the middle of a staff meeting or these kinds of things where you can um, really lock in coherence for a little longer, say five minutes. And if we do that often enough, even a couple of times a day for usually around six weeks is enough to retrain the brain and nervous system to where coherence is the new familiar. Right. 
So it's much easier to go into that state if we've trained ourselves, and, and most people stick with it once they get past that hump because it just feels better, right? And the, the benefits are obvious to most people. But it basically starts with uh, what we call heart-focused breathing. So heart-focused breathing is where you focus your attention in the area of the heart, kind of the center of the chest, and pretend or imagine your breath, your breath is flowing in and out of that area. Now, I know you're not really breathing, but energetically, you well, a lot of people start feeling actually a, a flow of energy sure. in that area. About half. But breathe a little slower than deeper than normal, but find a rhythm that's comfortable. And keep your, your kind of, and that is really important, that heart-focused attention there and, and breathing. To start, it's a, a breathing rhythm. Not that I want people counting in their head, but maybe to get the rhythm when they first start. It's about five, four or five seconds on the in-breath, four or five seconds on the out-breath, but an easy, not holding your breath in between, just an easy in and out. And that, by the way, that's important because we, we actually have a resonant frequency in, in the body between the heart, brain, the lungs, and that's a 10-second rhythm or 0.1 hertz in frequency language. So five seconds in, five seconds out, so we're breathing at the natural resonant frequency of the cardiovascular system and the heart-brain communication system. So anyway, heart-focused breathing. And then do, we do that for, um, well, in the heart lock-in, you want to sustain that. But then in the second step, which is also really important, is you want to activate feelings such as appreciation or care or compassion. Right Now, that uh, for a lot of people, that can be tough at first because we're so disassociated. And if that is, uh, just and breathe those feelings. And if that's um, challenging, well, think of a, a special place in nature that you really enjoy being. Maybe it's in the forest, walking in the trees or at the ocean. And it's not to visualize necessarily that, but it's to recall how you feel when you're there. Right? Then what's that recreate that feeling? For others, it might be uh, the feeling when you come home and your pet's there. And they jump in your lap or they're, you know, there to greet you and uh, loving you. What's that feeling that that evokes, right? So breathe that feeling. And then the third step in the heart lock-in is to kind of consciously send or radiate those higher heart quality feelings, appreciation, love, compassion to yourself, to all your cells, and then out to others. Well, that, uh, um, it's really the set. And try, so you're really locking into that heart rhythm coherence when we do that. And try and sustain that for at least three to five minutes. And that's beautiful. And um, this bit about uh, you know emanating uh, the emotion um, that that that's pivotal. That's key to the whole practice. Uh, and you've taught me and you know countless others, obviously, how the heart radiates magnetic fields and impacts global coherence. You know that we're all globally connected, and that each of us can impact this field by feeding into it positively, whether it's during a heart lock-in or even just whenever you have a moment in your day. Um, and I understand that it's maybe metaphorically like measuring the heart rhythms and brain waves of uh, Mother Earth, you know, uh, but as it turns out, and I've heard you say in the past, may not just actually be a metaphor. You, you know, if, if you expand on this and your work on global coherence for our listeners, I think everyone will find this very fascinating. Uh, awesome. Let me start with what you just said, and we'll go to the, let's go from personal to global. Uh, that, that could sound kind of new agey or woo-woo uh, when we talk about magnetic fields. But we're talking about the same kind of magnetic fields that um, my cell phone here uses. How, do, how, does the, how does the information get from here to the cell tower? Right? We 
we use electromagnetic fields to carry that information. And it's writing on it, the voice, your text, whatever you're sending. Now, why do cell phones work indoors? Because of the magnetic field. Magnetic and electric fields are two very different things. Magnetic fields go through things, right? right. If you don't believe me, stop using your cell phone indoors, right? right. Or even in, in an elevator. I used, in fact, I used to be a communication engineer before I became a psychophysiologist. I used to work for Motorola. Um, okay. So something I know a little bit about. That I did not know. Yes. And so when the heart beats, well, when we put electrodes on your chest to measure, or your brain, right, to measure the electrical activity, what we're measuring quite literally is the flow of current, right. electrons and ion flow, right? But whenever there's, this is a physics 101, whenever there's a flow of current, you produce a magnetic field. So the heart measures, uh, produces a magnetic field. And just like with the cell phone going through the walls, the magnetic field easily goes out into the space around us. Now, how do I know that? Well, we can measure it. Right. Right. Um, and you can measure it. It's called a magnetometer to measure the magnetic field. And you can measure the magnetic field, you know, feet away from the body, from the heart. You can measure a brainwave about an inch away from the body before you lose sensitivity. So clearly, energetically, we're talking now, the heart's the big player. Now, we can measure that field and, and see that our emotional states are literally being carried by that field in, in what we call information, emotional information patterns. And they're very different if somebody's feeling angry or upset versus if they're feeling more kindness, loving kind of feelings. Again, we know this, right, from our own experience. Sure. That's why we have so many stains in our language, you know, good vibes or the tension was so um, thick in that room, you could have cut it with a knife, right? We, sure. we, we, we all know this intuitively. Just now we can measure it. Even a good hug versus a bad hug. You, yeah. you can tell. You can feel right. it. Yeah. And it's all published in peer-reviewed journals and all that. Sure. In fact, you know, some people, have, it's amazing. I've, every now and then you run across, oh, that's nonsense. There's no such thing as a heart rate in a magnetic field. Well, sorry. In fact, I, one of these books on my bookshelf behind me is a book on bioelectromagnetism that has a diagram of the external, of the magnetic field of the heart, which was measured externally. And they got it right, the, the shape of it, in 1886. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, and I mean, most hospitals or larger hospitals have what are called MCGs, magnetocardiograms, right? And I won't go into all the reasons and advantages of that, but uh, this is pretty well-known stuff. Um, now, where this, to, to tie this into the global, as I mentioned, the uh, coherent rhythm of the, in a healthy heart rhythm, a coherent rhythm is a 10-second rhythm or point, 0 0.1 hertz in frequency language. So now if we, we, for our work on the, what's called the Global Coherence Initiative, we've installed magnetometers around the earth. Now, I wish we didn't have to do this ourselves because it's really expensive. And these imagine. Are, these are um, some of the most expensive, sensitive magnetometers in the world that are specifically designed to measure what we call the resonant frequencies, the moving part of the earth's magnetic fields. So if we take, uh, I'll try and keep this as simple as I can, Bryce, but the we all, most people know what the geomagnetic field is, right? The north-south pole, like what our compass tunes into, right? Uh, which ex extends out into space many thousands of miles. And thank God, because it's what protects Earth. You know, without the Earth's magnetic field, we would turn into Mars very quickly. Our atmosphere, water, it all be quickly blown away. Now, um, 
just asked people to kind of time travel in their mind back to when they were in science class back in probably uh, middle school or, you know, early on science class. And we got to dump iron filings on a glass plate. Sure. And you put your magnet under it and they all kind of magically line up and and, uh, show you the shape of your magnet, whether it's a horseshoe or bar or whatever. But if you recall, those iron filings lined up in lines, parallel lines. So not only are we seeing the shape of the field, it also lets us visualize what are called magnetic field lines. So the Earth's magnetic field, same thing. Now, what I didn't learn back then, anyway, was that magnetic field lines act just like guitar strings. You can pluck them and they vibrate. Right? So Earth's magnetic field lines are really long. So just like a guitar string, the length and the tension determines its frequency or the note that it vibrates at, the pitch, whatever you want to call it. And so what's plucking the field lines of Earth is the solar wind coming by. And Earth is turning, the solar wind's rushing, and the sun's turning. So it's this complex interplay of the magnetic field lines getting constantly plucked, and they're vibrating. Now, guess what? One of the primary resonant frequencies, and actually the technical name in science is called field line resonances. Guess what the frequency is, the primary resonant frequency of Earth's field lines? Same as the heart. Same as the heart, 0.1 hertz. Interesting. It's, just, it's not close. It's the same. It's in the same, same band, same range. Now, there's a second set of magnetic waves. It's a completely different mechanism. And, and people can get confused here, so I'm trying to make this clearly. That's, so we have the field lines vibrating, field line resonances. Then there's another set of, of energetic or magnetic rhythms around the Earth that are called Schumann resonances. Now, these are waves that are traveling around the surface of the Earth that are trapped between what's called the ionosphere and the surface of the earth. So the ionosphere, think of that as a soap bubble around the planet. And it's a, a highly ionized layer uh, called plasma. It's a, kind of the fourth state of matter in physics. Now, one of the properties of this ionosphere or the plasma is that it's like a mirror to magnetic waves. So there's this cavity created between the earth and the ionosphere. So when magnetic waves get created in that waveguide, which is what it is, if they're, if they fit the geometry, they're resonant with it, the right wavelength, they become, they're globally propagating standing waves. That just means they're everywhere all the time. Now, these were first, they're named Schumann resonances after a German mathematician who predicted them, that these things had to exist. And they weren't measured experimentally until late 1959, early 1960. So not that long ago. Yeah, it's recent. Yeah, but the first the uh, first Schumann resonance frequency is seven point eight three hertz. So you, I'm sure you recognize that. That's brain waves. That's right between oh, yeah. and alpha, right? Yeah. But there's eight Schumann resonances, and they all overlap our brain waves. Mm. So what I've just said is we have the our brains and hearts are oscillating and vibrating at the same frequency as the two primary magnetic rhythms of the Earth. Uh, now, just in, in, remember how I was talking about how the heart's magnetic field, you can measure way out here from the body and the, the brain about an inch. Sure. It's really interesting that the magnetic, the strength of the magnetic rhythms of Earth is a similar ratio. So the field line resonances, the same as the heart, are huge compared to Schumann resonances. They're tiny compared, in, comparatively speaking. But, but through, um, you know, again, I'll ask people to think back in science class with tuning forks. You know, even if you, most people, everybody knows this, uh, this example where you have two tuning forks of the same frequency and you tap one and the other starts to vibrate. Sure. That's just demonstrating resonance. 
but more, more specifically, it's called resonant coupling, showing that we can transfer energy and even more importantly, information between two systems that vibrate or oscillate at the same frequency. So I've just given you the basic physics of how our hearts and brains are vibrating at the same frequency as Earth's two primary magnetic systems. Mm -hmm. So how it's, it shouldn't be that big of a jump to understand how we can be transferring energy and information to the global field. You know, all of our hearts and brains are doing that. that that's why I call it the global information field that's mediated by the, the Earth's magnetic or energetic systems. So we're all feeding the field. We're all feeding the field. And we're all being affected by the field, which is very clear. That's, that's not a hypothesis. There are hundreds and hundreds of studies showing how we're affected by the field. Sure. And it has me a little concerned, you know, uh, perhaps where measurements are right now uh, with factors like, you know, fallout from COVID lockdowns around the world, the war in Ukraine and, you know, the general geopolitical uh, state of affairs and unrest. And, and I know I've heard you say this before as well, you know, some folks, you know, no matter what levels of stress or emotional aptitude they might be experiencing in their life at any given moment, sometimes they'll wake up and uh, not have a reason for right. feeling unrest or uh, emotionally uh, disequilibrated. And, um, and sometimes that's why, right? I mean, I've heard you explain this before, this, this uh, feeding the field. What we're picking up on um, is uh, the general collective of uh, angst in the world. Um, you know, and, and so that comes full circle back to this idea and this notion, whether you're practicing heart lock-in or simply you've got the time during your day to acknowledge the heart-brain connection uh, by feeding emotions, positive emotions, drawing upon our ability uh, to transition into, um, you know, positive uh, emotions that we're feeding this field. <laughs> we've got to be more cognizant of this on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I've also heard you say uh, before, and I fully agree, you know, that a major underpinning in poor health, perhaps even again, reduced health span is this failure of self-regulation, uh, a lack of alignment between uh, heart and brain. Um, and perhaps even leveraging intuition here might even play a role. Uh, mm -hmm. This is something, you know, that I've also uh, I've heard you say. So as we as we sort of tie up here, um, you know, what would be some recommendations uh, besides maybe the heart lock in that people can do on a day to day basis that they're going to prove themselves, their heart rate variability, their coherence and feed the field uh, more positively? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I guess I got to do a plug from one of my own books here. Um, I mean, learn some of the heart math techniques that are really designed to help people navigate day-to-day -day life with more grace, more ease, less stress. And, the, and the, the techniques are by design made as simple as they can. I mean, anybody can use them. It's just having the, the care, if you will, for your self-care to actually learn them and use them and becoming more self-aware of our emotional diet and especially those that are under the radar. You know, we've talked about impatience and frustration and so on. You know, those become so normal, so familiar to people, we don't even recognize that they're going on, but they're draining our life force or our energy. So we're starting to become more aware of those and learning how to, to shift those. Um, so we, we do, if people spent a tenth of a time, I would say, is, uh, paying attention to their emotional diet as they do reading labels, right, on bottles and stuff, the, the benefits are just so huge. Very true. Of, of doing that. So one of our books uh, I'm a co-author on with the HeartMath founder, um, Doc Childry, is Heart Intelligence. We have mm -hmm. a new edition that was just released. It's a great way to start. It's a very simple read and a lot of very practical, down-to-earth things that uh, people can do. 
if you're a science geek, I've got another one of my books called Science of the Heart. That's a, a good starting point uh, with uh, chapters on you know a lot of the topics we've talked about in intuition and uh, energetic fields and, and all these these things. Sure. And I got to say, you know, in clinical practice for over 20 years now, um, you know, the emotional aptitude is always something I review with my patients. And I got to say, probably two, three times out of 10, I am not just suggesting, but I am recommending prescribing perhaps the inner balance, um, something so simple to connect to your iPhone, your smartphone, um, you know, which ultimately registers, reads your heart rate variability and gives incredible instructions and, uh, you know, techniques as to which uh, you can employ and uh, get that better. My observation is this, that after about three or so months, this has been the average, you know, patient experience, three or so months, they no longer need the technology, you know, which is brilliant because then they can give it to a friend or a loved one uh, and share it, you know, and, uh, they just know how to, you know, in a, in a moment, uh, as we just talked about, be able to regain, there's an, uh, there's this, uh, ability to train ourselves into optimal coherence. So that we're just more successful at, uh, engaging, um, that, uh, optimal state in, in the moment, uh, faster and faster over time, you know, observations, um, on centenarians, uh, as it pertains, uh, to the concept of, of health span, uh, you know, those that live a hundred and beyond, Mm-hmm. Suggest as common denominator for longevity success is to have a sense of purpose, what the Japanese call uh, ikigai, um, or reason for living, as it loosely translates. And perhaps as a global community, we need to include efforts toward global coherence as part of our ikigai. You know, to work well, to I, feed absolutely. this field, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Over the years, I've had a lot of my advisors and scientific advisory board. Many of them are transitioned on now uh the you know like the carl prebrum franz hallbergs etc many i've had really been lucky and had the enjoyment of some some really legends that have hung out a lot here and been and been mentors for me and um interesting that none of them retirement wasn't even a concept <laughs> in their brains uh you know they they were passionate about their their work and their research until you know um until the day they died you know well into their 90s some of them and interestingly, um, we had the opportunity to measure their HRV in a lot of these folks, and it was well above the normal aging curve for gotcha. their age. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but but they had that purpose, sense of purpose, passion for life, and and their what they what their missions were about, and their research, and their their passions. So, uh, you know, makes total sense and 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 understanding that may, might be in fact that's the most common positive denominator in uh, the blue zone studies i mean they all have different diets uh you know they all have different uh, lifestyles and habits <clears throat> but the one common denominator is a sense of purpose it seems you know i just i, I just share the story if we have time but um a guy named charlie indler uh, used to be a well it's still around but he it was an advisor for us for many years uh, it was a prevention magazine. He did a lot of work for uh, in uh, people's rights for healthcare and these types of things. And they published many, many books. And he was telling me the story. He said, "You know, Roland, we we, we wrote a book on on aging, um, and we we went around and interviewed. Because first of all, we noticed that a lot of the proponents of anti aging, you know, the, the the famous speakers and this and that, were actually dying off at fairly early ages." Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that got me interested. So we went around and, and interviewed centurions all around the world. And uh, this just the way he, I won't get, he tells it much better than I will. We said most of them, or a lot of them, they were either smoking their cigars and enjoying a glass of wine or whatever it was in their culture. And, 
and they all talked about the importance of family and connection and never going to bed angry with your partner and all the things that you know we talk about um you know and it, you know their diets weren't you know they ate all the wrong things of what we would prescribe and did, did all these other behaviors but they were and so they said they came away with it from a very different perspective yeah and uh it reminds me of um, another one of my advisors uh, Stuart wolf you might know that name he, he did a famous study called the rosetta study Mm, yes, 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 yes. Of course. Yeah, but, yeah. Rosetta. He was the guy who did that. Yeah. He was a cardiologist in this Italian, this tight knit Italian community that had way lower heart disease than all the surrounding areas. And the research that, that, that they found was that it was a very tight knit community, very close social bonds and support for each other. And but they ate everything. Every, the diet was horrible and did, did everything that they shouldn't do. Right. But yet they were low, much lower levels of heart disease. And then as the years went on and they started, you know, marrying outside of that and, you know, that community kind of fractured, then their, their heart disease ratings went back to or started becoming more normal for, for the rest of the communities over, over the years. Sure. Fascinating. So, so my thought is this, you know, to summarize, uh, at least in, in part uh, for a discussion today, and, and that is um, anti-aging or, you know, in, you know, trying to strive toward longevity with even consideration for health span, the quality of years at the end of your life, squaring the curve, <clears throat> perhaps the focus, because, you know, typically it's more of just an end of one. How do I, as a person live longer, you know, with, through the understandings and appreciations of things like blue zones and these little pockets around the world that share common denominators, you know, even Ikigai, but what about collective health span? So feeding the field, right. With positivity and compassion to become, better in sync with ourselves, our peers and the world as a whole. So by taking self-responsibility, not just for ourselves and our environment, we can increase this inclusiveness, the collaboration and, and cooperation to build a healthier and happier global information field. I think that's the nugget right there. I think that may very well be a way that we can all build individual and then collective health span exactly. as well. Exactly. Um, you know, folks, for more information about HeartMath, check out heartmath.com. And for more about the Global Coherence app, Head on over to the App Store. Just before we go, tell us a little bit more about that app, by the way. The global well, I'd like to su suggest heartmap.org. That's the heartmap.org. Thank you. Yeah, that helps us support our research. Um, there is a .com as well, of course. Gotcha. Um, the, the, so the app you were asking about was which one? Yeah, I'm the sorry. Global Coherence app. It's something ah, I failed yes. to, to to talk about quick. But I mean, this is we <clears throat> we ended off with this idea of like you know you know for for collective health span, uh, global coherence is perhaps you know the the larger uh, focus. Yeah. Um, yes, we have a number of apps or, or um, the inner balance, which is great for personal uh, measuring your own HRV and how coherent your HRV is. Right. It's got guides and things as well. And you can use the same sensors for measuring you put on your ear to measure your, your heartbeat to measure your HRV with the global coherence app. Now, the global coherence app also measures and feeds back your personal coherence, but it also lets you create your own groups if you want, like your family. Or a work team to measure the group's coherence, so we can when you can practice things like a heart lock in or some of the other techniques together, you actually are starting to build the group coherence and the energetic connection amongst those group uh, members. And then we also have like a large global group, you know, the global field, um, so as, as well that you can join with that app, and it's reflecting. It's got a, one of my favorite things about that app is it's got a global map. So you can see all these dots all around the world of people who are there right now with you 
It's so cool. trying to consciously add more love and compassion to the global field environment. It's so cool. And I have to reiterate just a few must read books by Dr. McCready. You've collaborated on this one, as you just mentioned, uh, more recently, Heart Intelligence. And of course, you know, The Science of the Heart, Volume 2. That's amazing as well. It's available as a new ebook that can be found at uh, the HeartMath store. Dr. McCready, thank you so much for joining me today on Wild on Health Seeking House Bed. We really appreciate you. It was my pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, sir. Take care, everyone.